Hello, and welcome to the sixth and final installment of The Gerrymandering Project. In this episode, we're going to look back at what we've learned over the course of this series and also discuss some of the alternatives to the redistricting system that we currently have. I'm Galen Druk, and here with me today is Dave Wasserman, House Editor at the Cook Political Report and 538 contributor. You've heard a lot from him throughout this series. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Hey, Galen. Actually, today we're turning things on their heads. I'm not actually hosting this podcast. My editor, Chad, is. Chad's here with us. Hey, Chad, how's Hello, it going? Galen. He has edited this entire series. He's helped me make sense of the many complicated subjects in this series. And uh, we thought for this final episode, he'd sort of put Dave and I on the spot. So, Chad, I'm giving the baton to you. You're officially the host of this episode now. What do you got for us? So we're here to basically try and wrap up this series. There's been a lot that we have heard and a lot that we've dealt with for storytelling episodes. The intro episode, that was the discussion between the two of you. And I have found, even as I've dived into the scripts with Galen, that sometimes it can be a little hard to keep track of everything. And so we're going to do a little bit of summary um, towards the end of the show of what we've heard and the lessons that we've learned, and especially interested to hear from the two of you about how the research that you've been doing has shaped the way that you think about gerrymandering. But first, I think we should talk about the stuff that we didn't cover. And so I think we should sort of blue sky think and and see what other ideas that we can come up with to save the American uh, electoral system from itself. And I think we should use our Facebook group, The Gerrymandering Project, and the people who have been posting there as sort of a guide to what people are interested in of what we didn't cover. Uh, Does that sound good to the two of you guys? Sounds good to me. Let's go. Yes, thank you to all of you who have been contributing on the Facebook group. It's not too late. You can go to Facebook, search for The Gerrymandering Project. You can find it on 538's Facebook page. Okay, enough of the logistics. Let's get to the crazy harebrained schemes about American democracy. Let's begin with one of the most popular suggestions about ways to fix gerrymandering in the United States. This is from Marcus, who wrote on Facebook. What do you think about eliminating districts altogether, a tabula rasa, and instead just having proportional representation in each state? So, Galen, I'm going to go to you. Take it from the beginning. What is proportional representation? Okay, first of all, I have to say, I think this is the moment that a lot of people who at least have written to me have been waiting for because an awful lot of people have been asking us to cover proportional representation. This series was largely about the system that we currently have. We'll indulge a bit, but obviously this is a very different system from what we have. The general idea of proportional representation is that elections are more or less a census of the public. So if 20% of people in an area want Democrats to represent them, then they get 20% of the representation. That's pretty different from what we have now, which is winner-take-all elections. And there are a bunch of different ways to enact proportional representation that we can get into. So, for example, Dave, what state has 10 congressional districts? Well, Washington State. I love that you knew that right off the top of your head. All right. So let's say Washington State votes um, and it would be for the House. It would be a House statewide election, essentially. And 60 percent of the vote goes towards Democrats. Washington's congressional delegation would that be six Democrats and four Republicans. Is that right? Right. And so, Dave, do you see this as being something that could be folded into the American fabric, or is it too alien to actually make work? Well, first, let me say, I don't think redistricting reform is difficult because of a lack of public willpower. I think it's because reformers are split in infinite directions on the best Mm. approach to solve gerrymandering. And there's certainly a strong 
push for this notion of PR, which would be a very radical change from the system we have. And if we were to adopt it somehow, which I don't think is that feasible, would you have party lists? Would you have a mixed member proportional system as they have in Germany? And traditionally, the aversion to multi-member districts in America runs deep because in the past, multi-member seats have been used as tools of discrimination to dilute African-American voting strength in the South. You just mentioned a few different routes that could be taken, mixed member districts and, and something else in Germany. Galen, do you want to explain those couple options? Yeah, I think there are two main ways of doing proportional representation. The first is a party list. Basically, parties rank their candidates in order of how much they want them to be put into the legislature. And then everyone votes for whatever party they want. And then depending on the percentage of the vote that that party gets, that's how many of the people from that list get put into the legislative body. So if they get five seats, the first five people on that list get sent to the legislature or parliament or whatever. That means that you're not voting for a representative, really. You're voting for a party that will pick your representatives for you. But aren't we increasingly voting for party anyway? Uh, yeah, you could make that argument. I don't think philosophically people would love that idea. Also, we've heard a lot throughout this series about how people think it's important that representatives have some kind of geographic connection to the people that they're representing. Um, but yeah, then the other way of doing it is essentially rank choice voting. You do vote for a person, a bunch of candidates run, you rank the candidates in order from the person you most want to win to the least, and then you have to pass a certain threshold of number one votes in order to get a seat. And then if you don't fill up all the seats on that first round, you go to people's second choices and so on and so forth. It's a complicated way of voting, right? Because you vote for a bunch of people instead of one person. So we are sometimes skeptical of systems that make voting more complicated because academic research has shown that when you make voting more complicated, like ranked choice voting, the people who are less inclined to show up or understand the systems are people who are younger, less educated, and poorer. So Dave, let's assume that somehow we found a version of proportional representation that worked in America, that there was popular will behind, would that stop the problems of gerrymandering? Well, it's a good question, and it really varies a lot from country to country. But look, I think one of the advantages of a PR system is that you could have potentially Republicans elected from Hawaii or Massachusetts or Democrats elected from Utah. Right now, the minority party is shut out of so many areas of the country in the House that there are a lot of voters who don't feel heard. And it's developed a regional uh, style of representation in the House that's very polarizing and has caused a lot of, of anger and frustration. So we can solve partisanship and gerrymandering in the same, you know, blue sky solution. I no. love it. I disagree. <laughs> Tell me why, Joe. Uh, I mean, yeah, you essentially can get rid of gerrymandering because you get rid of districts. And yes, you do encourage parties to campaign all over the country. Um, there are plenty of people who criticize proportional representation as well for not solving all of the political dysfunction that we're facing. I mean, here's an example. Oftentimes in proportional representation, you get multi-party representation. You know, because you can win seats with 20% of the vote, if a party can get 20% of the vote, then they're encouraged to run candidates. And so perhaps in Utah, there might be, um, let's say, a Mormon variant of the Republican Party that splits off and becomes its own thing. Right. And therefore, it is more likely that you end up with 
no majority party governing a country. So if you look at a country like Italy that has proportional representation, I mean, it's spent significant periods of its existence without a government. So what will happen is instead of intra-party fighting, where you have the different wings of the Republican Party or Democratic Party fighting with each other, you just get separate parties. And then those parties don't agree with each other, but still have to form a coalition government. All right. So let's go to the next comment. John writes, quote, an idea that seems to surface a lot in order to reduce gerrymandering is massively increasing the number of representatives sent to a legislative body. John continues, this wouldn't be just a minor increase of, say, 10 percent, but increasing the size of the legislature by a factor of anywhere from two to 10. What effect would that have besides needing to rename 538? Well, you know, the number 435 doesn't appear in the Constitution and the size of the House is not fixed. It actually wasn't until 1913 that the size was set at what we know today at 435. I think there is a valid argument to be made for a larger house because smaller districts would theoretically bring members closer to their constituents and put a premium on retail campaigning. I mean, who knocks on doors anymore, really? (laughs) You raise money in D.C. to air a bunch of ads. But the argument against raising the number of house seats is also easy because – People hate politicians, and why should we have more of them? So, Dave, can you give a quick history lesson? So you said in the, in the 1910s, we fixed it at 435. There were many states added since then. So we essentially just redistributed the number of congressional seats after that? Well, actually, what happened was we temporarily increased the size of the House by two when Hawaii and Alaska were admitted. And then in the next census in 1970, the number was lowered again to 435, and several other states lost seats. Hmm, That's interesting. So, Galen, what do you think about this idea of increasing Congress? I mean, I find it interesting. Overall, I'm not sure that it would change things all that much. I mean, far from ending gerrymandering, um, you would have a lot more districts to create, (laughs) and actually you would be able to be a lot more precise with how you draw the lines in the sense that you could really zoom in on specific communities and maybe even make it harder to draw competitive districts. I mean, if you want to use data to really gerrymander the hell out of a state, that's somewhat magnified. On the upside, you know, you would be able to get a majority-minority district more easily. So in areas where there is a large minority population, but there's not enough of that community to actually create a VRA district, you would then be able to do that. So that's one benefit I could see. Yeah, I personally am intrigued by this idea. You'd have more district lines to adjudicate and figure out where they were drawn, but it seems like the stakes wouldn't be quite as high for every one of them because in some states you're only dealing with a handful of districts. The difference between three representatives who are Republicans and two representatives who are Republicans might matter. Dave, isn't it, is it New Hampshire who has like 3,000 state legislators or am I making that up? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a ratio of one state legislator for every three people in New Hampshire. <laughs> and so is that seen as a success in New Hampshire, do you know? It ends up leading to a lot of odd characters getting elected. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps we'd have even more marginal figures than we do already. Well, that's true. Look, I think this is an intriguing idea. I think it's worthy of consideration. But is it a solution to gerrymandering? No. Okay. So then let's move on. Let's leave it in the trash bin. Sorry, John. Thanks for playing. Uh, Here is an idea from Marcus. It involves an algorithm, which, you know, at 538, we're weak to that kind of idea. So Marcus on the Facebook group says to take, quote, geography and population numbers, coupled with a randomized process and let the chips 
fall where they may, so to speak. Yes, it will result in some unusual groupings, Marcus writes, but it might finally remove the issue from the political sphere. So we're in a very technological age. In the podcast, we've talked about how technology has shaped the way that gerrymandering is done now, that in the past you'd had to guess at where people live, but now you have much more exact voter files. So is technology the way out of the problem that technology in part has created? Dave, what do you think? Well, you know, Galen, I've been itching all podcasts to talk about this. And, you know, the dream of automated redistricting has actually been around since at least 1963, when a guy named Sid Hess, who worked at a chemical company in Delaware, wrote this influential proposal for algorithmic redistricting. And that was 1963. And since then, there's actually been a ton of research. And in our forthcoming interactive, we're featuring the work of a software engineer from Boston by the name of Brian Olson. And he came up with an algorithm minimizing the average distance between each constituent and his or her district's geographic center. I do believe we're at the point where technology can be part of the solution rather than the problem in redistricting and that mathematicians and computer scientists could actually be better at solving gerrymandering than political scientists and politicians. Now, the problem with automated maps is that they tend to be impractical to implement because they slice through so many pre-existing political boundaries like counties and cities. But I think that's a problem that technology could address. And quickly, the interactive that Dave mentioned, we're going to talk about at the end of the show, we're planning an interactive series of maps on 538 that will be debuting in January that uh, you, the listeners, can play with. But Galen, what do you think about what Dave said? I mean, you can program an algorithm to take into account geographic boundaries to consider voting patterns. You could make them competitive if you wanted to. At the end of the day, unless you're really going to randomize the process and then basically put people in districts that will not respect their counties or cities or communities whatsoever, then you still have to program into that algorithm the value choices that we've been talking about. So yeah, instead of having an independent commission make those decisions, you have an algorithm do it. But that doesn't really remove the kind of difficult choices that have to be made in the redistricting process. Well, I like the idea of a process that's as random as possible to draw districts. And if I had a magic wand, here's what I would do. I'd develop an algorithm that draws the shortest lines necessary to divide states into equally populous districts. So it's basically luck of the draw. But I would marry that requirement to another requirement that only the minimum number of counties and cities should be split in the process. Boom, gerrymandering solved. Yes. And also, you've just violated federal law. But I mean, right, that's kind of like the difficulty here. I mean, would you agree with that characterization, Dave? Part of the difficulty of implementing something like that is that it would violate the Voting Rights Act. Look, we've been litigating the Voting Rights Act for many decades by now. And the interpretation of the VRA has been vague when it comes to exactly what thresholds are best suited for representing minority interests. We've discussed that in North Carolina, among other places. And it may be time where we throw our hands up in the air and say, we should have a race-blind and partisan-blind system. You know, I have definitely heard from people who say that exact thing in the course of reporting this series. It's a really kind of complicated, oftentimes emotional subject to talk about. I don't honestly foresee race considerations in redistricting going away, but I do increasingly hear members of the African-American community, people involved with the NAACP, as you heard on this podcast, 
kind of shifting their mindset towards race-blind redistricting. And the theory there is that Democrats would stand to benefit if the country went race-blind in the redistricting. Is that right? You know, potentially. But there's also something deeper, which is do we want to segregate people based on their race in terms of where we put them in districts, right? When the Supreme Court originally looked at the 12th district that we talked about in the North Carolina episode, they basically said— this is really strange. We're really specifically dividing up citizens based on their race. Is that how we want our representative politics to look? Um, So yes, there are partisan politics at play. There is also kind of a deeper philosophical question about what our representation should look like. Yeah, this issue seems to sort of put a lot of sore spots for liberals in conflict with one another in a lot of ways. You have this question of, well, we want our agendas able to go through in Congress and and be able to take the House without needing to win plus 10 percentage points overall in the country to be able to do it. But at the same time, you have a lot of liberals who say that when parts of the Voting Rights Act were rolled back a few years ago, that was ignorant of the racial history of the country. And, And if liberals stand for racial equality, then you have to have some of these protections in place. And it, what I found most interesting about that North Carolina episode, as we tried to make sense of it, Galen, when we had all of your, your good audio that you collected, was how to represent the conflict that, to me, is at the core of the Democratic Party in this instance, but could easily be at the core of the Republican Party in, in some other one. You know, I've heard this described as politics of the second best. What we all want is to live in a world where you can draw districts regardless of race. And when African-Americans or Latinos run in largely white districts, they have just as good of a chance based on their ideas as, you know, a candidate who's white, right? That obviously was not the case when the Voting Rights Act was implemented. And so instead, we needed laws that did separate out people based on their race to some extent. And I think that a lot of people would recognize that there is a social cost that comes with doing that. But you kind of just have to weigh which is more important and how do you do the most good and the least harm? Right. The Supreme Court has set up an impossible conflict to resolve, right? On the one hand, you can't draw districts exclusively based on race. On the other, if it's possible to create a majority-minority district in a given area where you have racially polarized voting, you have to draw that district. And so where's the dividing line? I I would argue that majority-minority districts have actually served as poor springboards for their occupants when it comes to running for higher office, which is one of the many reasons I think it might be more ideal to draw a set of random districts where minority candidates might have chances in a variety of districts. And that brings us back to the algorithm. Yeah, this is complicated. I'm not sure either that the three of us who are all white men are particularly well-equipped to go deep into what's best for from minority communities. And we obviously heard from a number of African-Americans in the North Carolina episode, as well as someone talking about Latino representation um, as part of that episode as well. And and the dynamics were were different on on that side of it. Let's leave the algorithms there, I think, um, and move on to our final blue sky idea, which comes to us from Peter on the Facebook group. This is about thinking more nationally as opposed to on a state-by-state level. Peter, who appears to be from Australia, writes, As an outsider, I can't understand why there is not an independent federal electoral commission to run federal elections. Why is voting different in every state? Is there a constitutional reason why the Congress could not legislate to set up a commission? 
that would draw district boundaries and run the elections. It works well in Australia with a similar bicameral legislature. So in some ways, if I understand what Peter's writing well enough, he's saying, do what California did, but make it federal, make it national. Dave, does that seem like a good idea to you? Well, the fact American elections are decentralized is, in my opinion, a strength of our system because it makes elections harder to rig. And I think that actually builds more trust in the electoral system. That said, the fact that we're still arguing about gerrymandering until we're blue in the face is a uniquely American screw-up. And I would actually look to Canada, which has had some success in combating gerrymandering of its ridings at the provincial level. And in 1964, Canada passed the Electoral Boundaries Readjustment Act, and that led to commissions chaired by judges in basically every province that handle the process without much controversy. And there's no reason Congress couldn't require states to draw districts that way. Yeah. In terms of reforming our electoral system, I think that it is more likely that there will just be enough momentum on the state level that more and more states start passing these independent commissions, which will mean that every commission ends up being different. Laboratories of democracy, Galen. There you go. I mean, yeah, if you think that independent commissions are a good idea, then I can't imagine why you wouldn't want every state to have them. I think, though, that it is important in having this conversation to look at if you like the idea of proportional representation and that's what you're kind of attracted to overall and think an independent commission can get us there, it won't. I mean, if you look at the United Kingdom, they have a number of boards set up to district within, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, etc. But they don't have proportional representation in the UK. They have single member districts. And currently, conservatives possess more seats than, you know, they would have won in a proportional system. There are not the same charges of gerrymandering there, although I have read some on The Guardian, actually. So I think people have more trust in the process in the UK, but it does not get them proportional representation. Ironically, the controversy in those countries is focused more on reapportionment than redistricting, whereas in this country, reapportionment is actually a straightforward process where the census allocates seats to states. You wonder why the census couldn't also handle redistricting. Okay, so then let's let's zoom out. We've talked about four different plans now. Are any of them politically feasible? And actually, before we get to that question, Dave or Galen, do either of you know Polling-wise, how hungry the populace is for this kind of thing? Is there polling around stuff like that? I mean, the polling says that Americans don't like gerrymandering. But as we've learned throughout this series, that's not that meaningful because gerrymandering has a lot of different meanings. And there's also no policy that equals ending gerrymandering, right? There's a lot of different policy solutions that you can try that address different parts of the redistricting equation. So in terms of polling, I don't think people get polled about whether or not they want a federal independent Mm -hmm. commission. I don't know, Dave, do you know if there's polling about proportional representation or multi-member districts or like radically changing our electoral system? If there is, I haven't really seen it. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so if there's no polling, Dave, let's get to the political feasibility from just a politician and acting at standpoint. What's it going to take to change the system and, and make one of these or some other thing happen? Out of the options that we've discussed, I do think the California-style independent commission reform is the most feasible and practical to implement on a state-by-state basis. There are two obstacles, though. The first is it requires politicians who are currently in charge of the process to willingly give up power. That's a non-starter in most places. 
And the second is there are only 24 states that have robust ballot initiative processes like California that would allow voters, at least theoretically, to install a new process. Obviously, it is politically viable in some places. You know, we saw that it happened in Arizona, California, and others. In terms of some of these more blue sky ideas, proportional representation, there's a federal law preventing multi-member districts. So that would have to be repealed. And then, you know, if you wanted to implement this across the country and not just let states do it one by one, you might need a constitutional amendment. So, you know, that's not likely. When it comes to increasing the size of Congress, you'd also have to repeal a federal law. In terms of algorithms and randomization, possible. I mean, states can implement this, uh, I think, on their own. There's no laws preventing them, right, Dave? Not at all. Yeah. So in many ways, this would go kind of hand in hand with either, you know, changing the laws so that the state legislature has to follow certain rules when they redistrict or, you know, whatever criteria you set up for an independent commission to follow. Have we seen a politician run on a state level, run with redistricting reform as part of their platform? I know with Schwarzenegger, he sort of stumbled into it, it seemed. But has someone made this part of their core, you know, good governance kind of reform and therefore you should elect me? Yeah, we have. I actually received messages from some of them. Seriously? Yeah. And they didn't win, it seems. Uh, No, they're running right now. I mean, the thing is, gerrymandering has become such a political buzzword that it is now something that Mm. you can run on. I don't actually remember this person's name. This person is, like, not running for Senate or something like that. But are they getting into the specifics of redistricting reform? Probably not. But are they using gerrymandering as kind of a a catch-all for the system is messed up and things aren't working the way we want them to? Like, probably. And in that sense, you can run on gerrymandering generally. Okay, so let's leave it there. Those of you who are running on gerrymandering, continue to update us on your your progress as you go through the electoral season. We'll be curious to see the reaction that, that you're getting. Okay, let's return to the terrestrial space, leave the blue sky behind, be more grounded in our thinking, and talk a bit about what we've actually heard in this podcast and, and the four states in particular that we've gone to to refresh your mind, listeners, since I know it's been many weeks that this has been going on. Um, first, we went to Wisconsin to talk about partisan gerrymandering. Then we went to North Carolina to talk about racial gerrymandering. And then Arizona to talk about competitive elections. And then California to talk about independent commissions and keeping community communities together, communities of interest together. So, Galen, you've been on the ground in a few of those states. You've been talking to people nonstop for what feels like months. What's your takeaway from your experience talking to the the people in these four states? I think the overall takeaway that people probably already have is that this is a complicated process. There are a lot of trade-offs involved and difficult decisions for both for If you want to reform the system, how you want to do it, and then also just in the actual creation of the maps, what you want to prioritize. So reformers do have a challenging job, and they also exist in this world where gerrymandering has become a buzzword, and there is a lot of enthusiasm around the idea of ending gerrymandering, but we don't have a clear conception of exactly what that means. Like, for example, if Wisconsin Democrats win this Supreme Court case, we're probably going to read headlines that say Supreme Court ends gerrymandering. Uh, If you've listened to this podcast, you will know that that (laughs) won't be true and that it will kind of kick off probably decades of legal battles over still what is defined as gerrymandering. 
I think overall the lesson is that there is no such thing as, quote, ending gerrymandering as probably most people conceived of it uh, when we started this series. Yeah, I think the lesson is that redistricting isn't always the simple story of partisan gamesmanship that some people make it out to be. And as you said, there are trade-offs. Racial gerrymandering and communities of interest are still really, really hard to define. And, you know, sometimes drawing competitive districts requires sidestepping compactness. So let's dwell just a bit on that Supreme Court case in which Wisconsin's gerrymandering plan is to be ruled upon. Anthony Kennedy, who you heard in the Wisconsin episode, was most likely to swing justice, didn't ask any questions of the Democratic side in that case. And on 538.com, we did a fair amount of writing around what that might mean. And there is a small trend in Supreme Court argumentation that says, if you are not asked questions by a justice, it is probably because he already agrees with your position on the issue. And so perhaps there's a tea leaf to read there that partisan gerrymandering will be altered in some way, who knows to what extent. If that is to happen... You have already said, Galen, that it doesn't mean that gerrymandering is over. Do you have a sense for what gerrymandering would become? We still don't know, even if Wisconsin Democrats were to win, exactly what the ruling would say. Like, would it say that the threshold for what is considered illegal partisan gerrymandering is an 8% efficiency gap? Um, I think that's unlikely. Again, I don't really know. But if they did do that, then we would basically see redistricting become a kind of game of like how close to the edge can we get in terms of like how much of an advantage can we give ourselves without giving ourselves an illegal advantage. But what's most likely to happen if they do rule in favor of the Wisconsin Democrats is they will say in this one specific case, yes, you have crossed the line, but we're not telling you what the line is. You know, that's up to a whole bunch of future cases that have yet to be decided. And maybe someday we'll land on one thing. But just like you saw with racial gerrymandering, they still haven't landed on any kind of specific solution. So in which case, every district in the country would be subject to litigation. (laughs) So like gerrymandering would be a beat for every political journalist or every paper in America. As reporter, at least. Yeah. I've heard it called a full employment decision for lawyers. (laughs) Yeah, look. It's possible that a ruling in favor of adopting the efficiency gap standard could raise more questions than it actually answers. And what threshold would you set as a violation? How can you distinguish gerrymandering from a natural partisan advantage? And my biggest question is, could you preemptively strike down a map as too partisan before it takes effect? And if so, what election data would you use if an election hasn't even taken place yet? So I'm skeptical. But Dave, let's give people maybe a little bit of hope. Like when it comes to reapportionment and the one person, one vote ruling, there was not a specific measurement at the time, but we did eventually get there, right? When the Supreme Court ruled on one man, one vote, the answer was pretty clear. Districts have to be equal in population. Now, exactly how equal had been litigated for years afterwards, and they finally arrived at, well, virtually equal. Congressional districts rarely vary by more than one person within each state, so they're pretty darn equal. That's a bright line legal standard, but I don't think the efficiency gap would result in a bright line. Let's talk quickly about North Carolina. We talked about it earlier in the podcast just a bit. John on the Facebook group asks, in the broader question of gerrymandering, does the Voting Rights Act do more harm than good. John says, I'm definitely not against the VRA and not even necessarily the majority-minority requirements. I'm just wondering if there's a better approach than the one in place now. Galen, do you have thoughts on that? 
Is there a better approach than the one that's in place now? Almost certainly yes, right? There Almost <laughs> certainly yes, given like limitless possibilities. You know, I don't feel like I can say how to represent minorities in America, I don't think, is kind of like a scientific equation where you can just plug in a bunch of numbers and it will tell you past this law, right? It's different people lobbying for whatever they think are the best moral decisions, and I certainly can't tell you that. I think the danger in all this is that race is being used as a proxy for partisanship and vice versa. For example, North Carolina Republicans saw the VRA as their best friend in 2011 because they were able to draw a map that packed Democratic voters into African-American majority districts. On the other hand, Democrats have successfully sued to overturn Virginia's congressional map on the basis that it was an illegal racial gerrymander, even though Republicans' goal in the map was to maximize their partisan advantage. Okay, so let's leave it there in North Carolina and speed ahead to Arizona, where we looked at competitive elections and self-sorting, in particular this idea that it's hard to make things competitive because people keep moving closer to the people who think like them. What does that teach us about this idea of competitive elections? Is, is that a, a false thing to, to chase down, Dave? Well, if competitive elections was the goal, then Arizona pretty much succeeded in creating them. And partisan gerrymandering has been more effective than it used to be, not necessarily because of advancements in computer technology, but I'd argue more because we've got a polarized political electorate, a more polarized electorate than we used to, and it's easier to sort Democrats and Republicans into like-minded districts if they've already sorted themselves. So the question then is, do you gerrymander to reverse the sorting of voters? And that's a very thorny subject. Yeah, I think that there is a common conception in reporting about gerrymandering that the reason it's such an issue today is because of technology. From what I understand, the technology has been roughly the same since about the 80s. It's just that people don't live in the same areas and they don't go back and forth between parties from one election to the next. So, yeah, competitive elections is a really difficult conversation. And actually, it's probably a conversation that belongs mostly not in the realm of gerrymandering and probably mostly in the realm of American politics writ large. Why are we so polarized? It doesn't have to do with media. It doesn't have to do with the way that politicians behave. It doesn't have to do with the economy. So, if we want competitive elections, we probably have to look elsewhere. Yeah, and perhaps trying to gerrymander out of self-sorting is treating the symptom, not the disease, essentially. And that, right. and that the, the thing to do is to think about more societal factors. One of the things we did for the interactive that's forthcoming is we gerrymandered to maximize the number of competitive districts. And I found that we were able to draw about 240 competitive districts out of 435, but we had to resort to some pretty creative techniques to draw those. How'd those shapes look? Mm, well, let's just say some of them would have put Elbridge Gary's original gerrymander to shame. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to California, and then we're going to talk about those interactive maps in just a, a moment. It would seem to me, listening to your comments, Dave, in the California episode, and then also treating the script with Galen as we made that episode, that California offered the most hope for you guys or that you seem to think that that was the one solution that maybe was most workable. Am I wrong to pick that up, Dave? There's a temptation to believe that all commissions are created equal. California's really is different from other states because it was 
more independent. It was a true citizens commission where the appointees were not directly appointed by state legislative leaders as they are in some other states. And it had its wrinkles for sure, but I see it as a success story. And keep in mind, California did something else in 2012. It adopted a new primary system, a top two system where the top two finishers, regardless of party in, in the primary, would advance the general election. And I think that reform, coupled with redistricting reform, holds the potential to keep members more accountable, even if they represent seats that are safe for their party. In general, are Californians more happy with the results they got after the 2011 redistricting than Arizonans? I think so. I didn't talk to a single Republican who was happy with the results in Arizona. In that sense, yeah, there's probably optimism there. I would also say after the 2016 election, there was almost no efficiency gap to speak of. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of people are going to judge maps by how proportional the representation is. Is an independent commission always going to achieve almost no efficiency gap or proportional representation? No. So people have to understand that and be okay with that if that is not the result of an independent commission drawing the maps. And lastly, I would say that as I've traveled around the country and talked to Republicans about gerrymandering and the reform efforts that have largely been pushed by either, you know, nonpartisan organizations, but in the political sphere, more Democrats, they are skeptical of independent commissions. And I think after listening to the Arizona and California episodes, you can kind of see why. What did the Democratic Party do? It tried to impact the results. You know, I think we kind of understand now that this is a political process. You're not really going to take the politics out. But yeah, I don't think that Republicans listening to these two episodes who might have already been skeptical of independent commissions are going to say, hey, oh, yeah, we totally trust Democrats to implement all these commissions. And then it's going to be a really fair process. Is that not in part just a, a function of what time we're trying to reform gerrymandering or those commissions are trying to reform things in, which is that in 2010, there was a there was a wave election in which Republicans swept in. Um, I guess in California, it was a little bit a different. A thousand percent. But, a thousand percent. And so in 2020, theoretically, if Democrats continue to be trending towards, let's say, sweeping state houses and, and whatever else, obviously a lot of politics needs to happen before then, then independent commissions come 2027 would have Democrats being disadvantaged, right? I don't know about disadvantage, but in terms of why are we hearing for all of these calls for reform now, particularly from Democrats? Yeah, it's because they did poorly in 2010. Dave can speak to this better than I can, but Democrats have been gerrymandering in this country for a long time. This is not new, but the reason that everybody knows about this now is because Democrats did do so poorly in 2010. Right. And let's be honest, had Democrats won the 2010 midterms, they would have done the same thing that Republicans did. To the victors go the spoils. And there was a perfect storm in 2010 where Republicans not only won control of a historic number of state legislatures and nearly a historic number of governorships, but Democrats also by 2010 were increasingly clustered in cities and college towns. And that allowed Republicans to draw essentially lines around Democrats more easily. Let's leave California there before we get to the final parting words. Dave, do you have like a little trailer you can play with some bombastic music about these interactive maps that are coming in a week or two to, to 538? <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. Well, you know, for the last three months, I've been living out my childhood dream of moonlighting nights and weekends as a redistricting consultant. What a dream. I know. And I drew 258 hypothetical congressional maps to see what happens when you consider different criteria. And I use this really cool web-based tool anyone can use 
called Dave's Redistricting App. It's not mine. It's actually created by a uh, retired software engineer named Dave Bradley in Seattle, who's a great guy. And I hand drew every district in the country six different ways. We drew a Republican gerrymander, a Democratic gerrymander, a nonpartisan compactness map, a competitive map, a proportional map, and a minority maximization map. By the end, I'm pretty sure I had carpal tunnel and my wife wonders where I've been since October, but I am really psyched for our work to premiere on the site in a few days. And I've actually taken a sneak peek at this interactive and it's amazing. And it goes really well with all of the conversations that we've been having on this podcast about the trade-offs because you actually get to see them in real life and you also get to see what the overall composition of Congress would look like if every state redistricted with the same goals in mind. I can't wait to look. I'm very excited to see this. I've, I've been peeking over colleagues' shoulders. And I have to say, out of the thousands of districts I drew, I'm probably proudest of the Asian-majority district I drew in New York City, which goes from basically the Nassau County line with Queens to Chinatown in Manhattan to Sunset Park in Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm glad that that's your proudest achievement. So listeners, you can uh, take a, a look at these interactive maps on 538.com, as well as read some writing about redistricting from Dave and Terry Anton, who you'll recognize from the Week to Week Politics podcast. I think it's time for the final thoughts. Dave, do you want to do the honors first? As you know, you've both been interviewed for this podcast and also been listening to them after the fact. What are your takeaways? You know, more generally, as a redistricting nerd, I have to say it's been a lot of fun to see gerrymandering be kind of in vogue and have its moment in the sun. You know, the public consciousness has soared, and that's been especially true on the left as Democrats have been shut out of power in the House and in a lot of state houses. But there's no such thing as a foolproof map. And I just wonder if Democrats will remain as amped up about redistricting reform if they have a stellar year in 2018 and gain a lot more power in advance of the 2020 round. I love that something appearing on 538 makes it in vogue. That that That's a... Uh... That's my childhood dream. Sign uh, of the time. <laughs> it is. I go on dates with people and they bring up gerrymandering all on their own without me even having to talk about, you know, the work that we've been doing. Now I really know why you embarked on this series. <laughs> yeah. Make um, me popular. <laughs> Galen, as you think back to what is, what, six months, maybe more that you've been working on this overall, a big chunk of your life has disappeared into these podcasts. What, what are, what are you going to take away besides um, a lack of sleep? A lot. But I guess what I'll part with is this. When people first started listening to the podcasts, a lot of people messaged saying, well, what about an independent commission? Can't you have an independent commission do it? That'll take care of gerrymandering. Then when we went to Arizona and, and that independent commission was awfully raucous and partisan, people started emailing, well, what, what about proportional representation? Can't we do proportional representation? And if you do the research, there are flaws with proportional representation. And we could do an entire other series looking at alternative ways of setting up an electoral system. And you'll find flaws with all of them. And I think what people do have to look at is the political health of the country beyond just how we draw districts. You know, we've had this system of government for a long time. The things that have really changed are people's political behavior within the system. But ultimately, what we're not trying to say, what I'm not trying to say, is that means that, like, reform is useless and that the system shouldn't be reformed. Like, hopefully, in the process of illustrating all of these trade-offs, we've also highlighted what is actually wrong with the system. But just too frequently, once something becomes 
a buzzword, which I think it is now, and everyone just decides, oh, we need to end gerrymandering, then the actual details stop mattering and you can kind of get any policy passed as long as you promise it will end gerrymandering. I would just say this. At the end of the day, we're talking about changing the structure of our representative democracy. That's a big deal. And so people need to understand the difficult trade-offs and choices that they're making when they have that conversation. Don't let this just be a conversation of, we need to end gerrymandering, period. Make sure that when people have this conversation, they are talking about the difficult choices involved. Yeah, I think that's very well put and shows why you were the the right tour guide for, for this um, trip through gerrymandering reform that we've had over the last six episodes. It's been a real pleasure to listen and, and to work with you on it. And um, so I thank you for putting together all this work. And it would not be fitting for me to read the credits. So Galen, I'm going to hand it back over to you for the credits one last time. Yes. Thank you for listening to that uh, long winded summation of everything I've learned. But um, yeah, I'm Galen Druk. Thanks for sticking with me. Chadwick Matlin, you have edited this entire series. You have been a lifesaver. If people listening to this series understood the words that were coming out of my mouth, it was only because the first time I wrote them, Chad told me that they didn't make any sense and we had to rewrite all of them. Dave Wasserman, you helped craft the idea of this series from the very beginning. So thank you. And we're eagerly awaiting all of the beautiful maps that you've drawn up. So thanks a lot. And thanks for joining us for this conclusion episode. Well, from concept to design, it's been a pleasure. Micah Cohen is our politics editor. He made sure that we stayed grounded in all of the data. Our talented interns were Kate Bakhtirova and Alice Wilder. Our fall intern Kate just left us to do a semester abroad in Paris, and we wish her all the best. And our summer intern Alice is already off working on other big projects. They both did tremendous jobs, so thank you. Ann Pope did the engineering and scoring for this series. Thank you, Ann. Tony Chow manned the control room for many of the roughly 60 interviews that we did, so thank you, Tony. Jody Avergan has been reading our scripts and sharing feedback. We've had lots of tape sinkers in cities around the country whose names you've heard throughout this series. This project has involved a lot of contributions from a lot of people, so thank you to everyone involved. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you still have any questions or thoughts, you can head to our Facebook page or you can email us at podcasts at 538.com or you can send a tweet. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and maybe tell other people to check it out. And also don't forget to check out the coverage on our website that will be posted in the coming weeks. Maybe we'll be back when gerrymandering pops up in the news. We are, after all, all waiting for that Supreme Court decision. But that's all from us for now. So... Thank you for listening.